Simple Beep, episode 32, System Hacking with ResEdit. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this episode, we're going to follow along from our previous episode, which was all about the system folder. So we gave a general overview of the system folder in episode 31. And as we were looking through the items in the system folder, we couldn't help but to go a little bit deeper. And, you know, we remember back when we were using the classic Mac, we were always poking around in things in ResEdit, not just looking at the files and folders on the drive. And so we're going to go into that and it'll get into a lot of the features that were in the classic OS and the things that you could do with them. But before we go into that, of course, we have a little bit of follow-up. This is mostly a uh, corrections and errata section <laughs> from last episode. And usually we, I, I was expecting that we were going to get all of this like ATP level feedback from our listeners of all the tiny things that we got wrong in the episode. Because as I was going through and doing show notes, I was hearing every single one of them. But we have a couple that we'll fess up to here. And the first is that we talked about the size of the floppy drive in the original Macintosh and how the system folder had to be small so that there was room for other things on those floppy disks. And we pegged it at 800K, but it turns out it was even smaller. It was 400K, ever more the reason for the system folder to be so small. And also, I said something incredibly stupid, which was that uh, when you choose the new folder command in the finder, what does it call the thing that it just made? It's untitled folder. And I said that it did not call it untitled folder, uh, which it completely does. I think my general point was that it was that it said folder because we were talking about the word folder being spelled out. And that that much was true, but it also has the word untitled. And if we are missing anything, of course, feel free to let us know what we got wrong and we will address it in a future episode. Yeah, we were just surprised that there wasn't a flood of tweets. But for now, let's get into the main topic of today's episode, the various resources inside the system suitcase and finder file and uh, the ways that you could change them. And changing them was pretty well encouraged by a lot of third-party sources and publications at the time. I know that I relied on a couple of them fairly heavily for doing research for this. Uh, I have this book called Voodoo Mac. It looks like it was published around the time of the System 6, System 7 transition, judging from the way that it describes various system features. And I also have here uh, uh, issue 5 of Mac Addict Magazine, which was my first issue that I ever purchased of it. And it's got a giant stylized version of the ResEdit mascot who, slash icon, who is a jack-in-the-box coming out of a classic uh, all-in-one Mac. And it says in giant letters on the front of this issue, hack your Mac. Uh, and I believe that all of the early Mac addicts are now up on the Internet Archive, so we can link directly to that. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I, I found one of them by Google Search today, and the Internet Archive likes to put things in all kinds of different formats to you know, future-proof it and make it accessible in general. Um, I think there are like... Uh, there's a web interface where you can go through and actually see scanned pages, but there was also a text file, which was really entertaining because they clearly just OCR'd it, and a lot of the uh, advertisements and such and all of the formatting would lead to very strange things where it would be talking coherently about a piece of software, and then it would just go into gobbledygook. <laughs> um, but we can link to it. And 
the thing with these uh, kind of publications was they were telling you concrete things that you could do by hacking the system. You you could just see it as a playground, and there are certain areas where it was more ripe for that. You would just go in and customize things so that they seemed cool to you. And you know, when I was doing this, I was in elementary school and had a very uh, ill-formed sense of cool. <laughs> um, as I t- said on the last episode, when I wound up in the situation where I couldn't get the system to boot and it was telling me ridiculous error messages that I had typed into my hacked system and uh, I couldn't get out of it. <laughs> but there were also lots of practical things that you could do. And as I was going through these, uh, I think we'll see that a lot of these are the kind of things that we consider more as features than hacks now. There's another bit of reference that actually I discovered way after uh, the time that I was modifying my system files, and it was Apple's own ResEdit reference manual, which we will link to in the show notes, and it's still live on Apple's site, not in the Internet Archive. Uh, but you know, I was referring to it as we were putting together notes for this episode, and it is very comprehensive. It's over 100 pages. <laughs> yeah. And as Ed pointed out uh, in our Slack channel, there are probably a thousand inside jokes or fun Easter eggy references in it. So uh, it's not light reading, but if you have a hankering for the kind of nostalgia that we talk about on this show, there's probably something in this that'll make you laugh. It is almost light reading. I mean, I'm looking at a page of it right now where it introduces the bundle resource. That's B-N-D-L. And the first sentence in the section is, To date, bundle resources have been mysterious, opaque, and difficult to learn about. So this really has a sense of humor. And yeah, the references in there, there are things where there would be a screenshot of like an open dialogue box, and there's 12 files in it, and they all have names that are jokes of some sort or another. All right, so let's get into some of these files and their resources themselves. I think first we'll start in the big main one, the system suitcase, which we talked about in the previous episode. And I'll start by talking about the icons contained within. Uh, We've done episodes on icons. We've done episodes on kaleidoscope scheming. This is probably 90 to 95% of the customization I did on my system. We're just changing the icons. And whether they were icons for Finder windows, like your files and folders and different system pieces, or icons used in the interface itself, Uh, maybe the Apple menu uh, certain dialogue boxes or alerts uh, all use different icons. Most of the the hacking and tinkering I was doing was in ResEdit's native icon editor. And in the system suitcase itself, there were a bunch of system level icons you could change. There were icons representing the different ports, like your serial ports, modem, printer, ADB. Uh, of course, the system folder components, like the suitcase and finder, uh, the special folders we talked about, like Apple menu items and extensions. Some things that I'll call generics, like uh, an extension or a control panel without a custom icon, an application or a document or a desk accessory. Or probably, most of all, a folder. Because you know that anytime that you create a new folder, which is called Untitled Folder, (laughs) when you do that, you're going to get a folder with default icon, and that's controlled by the system. So maybe if you want to have a custom set of folder icons for applications or documents that you got from a third-party site or created yourself, but you want all of the new folders to match them, you would have to go in here and change that default or generic icon. 
I mean, you could do it just within the finder, but that would mean that every time you created a new folder, you would have to go find that icon, give it the custom icon from the get info window, copy, paste, and that would get tedious. And also, if you got, say, a disk from another source, then the generic folder icons on there are also going to be determined by your system. Uh, so if you were, even if you were most meticulous about making sure that you pasted a custom icon on every single one of your new folders, somebody else's generic folders would still be messing up your fancy interface customization. And of course, there were other things that couldn't be customized through the get info window. For example, the trash. You know, if you get info on the trash, you can click on the icon, but you're not going to be able to paste in something new. And so we could go into ResEdit and we could open the system file, system suitcase, and customize to our heart's content. But there were some third-party applications apart from ResEdit that could do this. Uh, the ones that come to mind are obviously, for me, the ones from the Icon Factory. First, there was Icon Dropper, and then there was iControl, <laughs> stylized like Apple's iProducts. Um, and I was trying to remember what the difference was between them and going through the Internet Archive for both product pages. I think the big differentiating factor, or one of the big differentiating factors, is that iControl, the later application, could also handle <laughs> the trash specifically and things that weren't just get info accessible. And also, you mentioned Kaleidoscope. I know that in the later versions of Kaleidoscope, a scheme could specify its own custom icons, including things like generic folders. And whatever kind of behind-the-scenes tricks Kaleidoscope had, which really did fall into the category of hacks, uh, they were just bundled up nicely as a product. <laughs> um, it had the ability that with the Kaleidoscope extension in Kaleidoscope 2, when you double-clicked on a scheme... It would go through and it could on the fly implement those default folder icons on every single non-custom folder icon on your system, which was really kind of magic. And one final thing, if you're still interested in doing this today, the Icon Factory partnered with Panic to make a modern version of these applications called Candy Bar, which is not being actively maintained as we write this, and I think was last updated for Snow Leopard. But it would do a lot of the same things for all of the default icons in an OS X install. So if you're willing to try it, I believe if you go to Panic's uh, blog. Yeah, I just pulled up the blog post now, and they did an update in 2012 for 10.8. Oh, okay. For Mountain Lion. And they said, here it is. We've updated it this far, and that's the end of the line. It is free and unsupported, so you can try it out. I have not personally tried it out in El Capitan, but you can give it a shot. So icon customization seems fairly straightforward. We've talked a lot about icon customization in the past, and the fact that it was just widespread and pervasive throughout the entire system. You were either going to be able to do it the simple way, or you could go in and do these additional tweaks to your icons. But there were other things in the system suitcase that fell well outside of that realm of, oh, I can just customize this by hitting get info. And one of the things that's in there are menus. So there were actually resources that specified what all the different items were in menus in different applications and even in the system itself. So within the system itself, you have to think about this in terms of the fact that 
from the beginning of the Mac, the menu bar changes based on what the current application is. And so what are the menus that actually are just part of the system? Those are not even the Finder menus like File, Edit, View within the Finder, but the ones that remain there the entire time. So there are only a handful of these menu resources within the system file, but they are menu resources, capital M-E-N-U. And in ResEdit, there is a nice GUI editor for this type of resource. It shows a representation of the menu as if it were dropped down, and you can select individual items, rename them, assign keyboard shortcuts if you wanted to. And I think even in later versions, customize colors, add separators, all kinds of things. So you could really do a lot with these resources. In the system suitcase itself, there are a couple of special menus, and these are the menus that didn't have names. Part of the menu resource was the menu name. <laughs> Just kind of jokingly, I'm looking at this issue of Mac Attic that's in front of me, and on the, on the front, they have like a fake menu bar at the top, and it's got an Apple menu with sunglasses on. And then the, the menus across the top are File, Edith, View, Hi Mom, See Ya, and Check It Out. <laughs> because it was 1997. Edith. <laughs> the ones in the system were mostly not named menus. The two ones that were important that were in here were the Application Switcher menu and the Balloon Help menu. And these had silly names. So I, I don't know what this what the reasoning behind this was. Presumably, they are, again, inside references to people who worked on these features. So the application menu, its menu title in this resource is called Mara. And the balloon help menu is called Randy, with just the A, N, and Y capitalized. So it's like ransom note, elite speak. <laughs> And I remember that when I would look at these menus in ResEdit, the Mora, the application menu, would always throw me off because the way it would show up in the ResEdit editor uh, was reflecting the state of my system at that time. So it would obviously show, include ResEdit in the list of running applications. And if I had other things open, they would show up in that rendering of the menu as I was editing it. Oh, that's that's interesting. I don't get that. I just get uh, blank underneath. But it does have one of these features that we'll see later on is where there are placeholders and variables within the menu. So the first item in Mora <laughs> is hide caret zero. And so that caret symbol is what's saying this is going to be a placeholder. Um, you know, like if you use regular expressions to deal with text now, depending on the place that you're using them, there's going to be some sort of convention to like get the first captured group and put that in the replace section of the regular expression. Like I do this a lot at work in text wrangler and it's just backslash one backslash two backslash three are the things. So you could capture, uh, bits of text and move them around here. It's the same thing. So it's, so hide caret zero is saying hide the current app. So some part of the system is going to supply that variable, what the current app is. So yeah, there are these couple of menus in here. And there are some that <laughs> I'm sure they serve some system purpose, but they're not exactly human readable. There's one that in my copy of the system that's called FS formats and appears to have no, no items in it. And there are a couple that appear to have neither a name nor any items in it. So 
Who knows what those were exactly used for? This is the thing with uh, looking inside the system file is there's a lot in there that's not human readable. Yeah. But there are these glimpses into different features that are human readable. And sometimes you just run up against a wall. That was kind of... You know, I, I'm sure that if you were a serious developer, uh, especially if you knew something about operating systems development or, heck, worked at Apple, that a lot of this would mean a lot more to you and you could manipulate it more directly. But there's sort of an entire unsaid documentation for how many of these resources work. And then there's the built-in to resedit tools and documentation that makes it easy to understand. Even if you don't really know exactly what it does, you might be able to figure it out. Uh, another one that was fairly transparent and had uh, little custom icons on the resource type, again, another clue that would say, oh, you can actually manipulate this and see this and figure out what it means, were the various resources that controlled dialog boxes and alerts. So these were uh, ALRT for alert, D-L-O-G, which uh, was short for dialog. And those resources basically said, where on the screen is this dialog box going to appear? How big is it? And then a third type of resource, and this was kind of the way that these resources worked, is that frequently you would need to have one, two, three resources in combination to actually perform some action or achieve a desired effect. And they would all need to have the same resource ID to be linked up in that way. And so the other type of resource for dialog boxes was DITL, which was short for dialog item list. And if you opened up one of these, you would get another sort of rich GUI interface that was, I don't know, it's a lot like the interface builder tools that are in Xcode even today. I mean, I haven't used them a lot, but I get the impression that they're somewhat similar, where it's like a drag-and-drop interface for putting buttons, for putting text that you don't directly interact with, for putting an icon, for putting checkboxes, those sorts of things. And so the easiest thing that you could do with these if you wanted to modify them in some way was to either just reorganize them or to go in and start changing the text in them. And I think that, you know, like I said earlier, when I was just discovering this literally as a child, it was fun to just go in and be able to change the text and then somehow trigger that dialogue box and confirm that you had changed the text. That was the entertainment in and of itself. But a lot of the, these publications that are trying to promote productive hacks were more looking at things like changing the message to be something that was going to help you in terms of productivity or give you a reminder or make an error message more clear to you. But I never really got to that stage. <laughs> There's also another type of dialog box resource. Again, this is where several different things correspond to what seems like one feature to the end user if you don't go poking into ResEdit to figure this all out. And this one, I think, is a one that's specific to the system suitcase, and it's a DSAT. Um, I don't know exactly what that stands for. And these were special dialog boxes, the ones that appear at startup and shutdown. And 
These were not represented in the same way. I don't know exactly why, probably because they were triggered in different ways within the system. But you could also change the messages in these, but when you open these, you didn't get a GUI, you got a hex editor. And because a portion of this was the text that was going to appear in the dialog box, and the rest of it was the code that specified positions of the dialog box, you could find the part that was plain text and change it. But as was pointed out in one of these books, that because this was basically a compiled piece of code and you were going in and changing the hex directly, if you altered anything that wasn't plain text, including the position of the things that weren't plain text, you could screw things up very badly. And so it's like, okay, you can go in here and customize your shutdown message. And the example would be like, don't forget to turn off the printer or something like that. Uh, and But the default message, I think, had 44 characters exactly. And if yours was longer than 44 characters, you would have to edit it. <laughs> and if it was shorter than 44 characters, you had to pad it with spaces because otherwise the resource would essentially be corrupt. And then you might not be able to start up or shut down at all. The finder might crash. And then you would be in a very bad state. Of course, all of these... We talked in the previous episode about being able to you know, copy the system folder around, being able to have multiple copies of things, blessing system folders and the like. And all of these say, make a backup copy, make a backup copy. And I think Voodoo Max says, make command D your friend. <laughs> just like go in there and just make you know seven copies of the finder and before you do anything. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think ResEdit won't actually, well, it will let you open the system suitcase itself, but it will throw a special warning. It's like, uh, you should really be working on a backup. Are you sure you want to work on this live system suitcase? Yeah, I think in my version, it it doesn't care at all about the system suitcase. Oh, man. But uh, I tried to open the live finder, and it just says, this file is in use by another application, ah. i.e. the finder, which is running right now. Uh, so you have to work on a copy of it. And of course, there was no time machine backups or anything like that to save your bacon if you made a change that you really needed to be able to revert. There was, in some cases, almost no way out. Like when I got in, stuck in that loop with the RAM disk that wouldn't start up and wouldn't shut down and wouldn't let me choose a different startup disk. And it's like, oh, but the, in that case, I was lucky. I did have a way out, which was literally just remove power from the RAM and then it will find my regular startup disk. But you could really hose yourself pretty badly if you weren't careful about this. There were some other resources in the system suitcase that were maybe a friendlier way to edit the contents of a dialog box um, or some other things that we'll talk about later uh, because they were plain text strings. They are the str and the str pound sign resources. And these were basically resources for plain text strings, and they could be applied to a variety of different use cases. The ones in the system suitcase, I guess I should be specific because Ed and I are working on different classic systems. I'm on a 9.2, so maybe this, this explains some of the differences we're, we're having. Uh, but a lot of these strings in my system suitcase were additional dialog box, alert dialog box text. And uh, I was just, you know, kind of going through looking for ones that I were that I was familiar with, and 
there was one that I had never seen before, but uh, I had to paste it here because it had a little bit of that Macintosh charm. And it's, uh, for those curious, it's STR resource negative 16,389. But the, t- the contents of the string was, no battery reserve power remains. The Macintosh will go to sleep within 10 seconds to preserve the contents of memory. Good night. The thing about going through these strings is you could go through them and more or less, this was another way to learn about the capabilities of the system. Some were things that you had seen before. Some of them you could predict the context in which you were going to see them and then try to find them in the future. And you just had an idea of what the operating system could throw at you in terms of messages that would appear on screen. I now am going through uh, the STRs. Uh, I, I guess it must be all of the resource types are four characters. Yes. And it must be STR space. Oh, okay. Because in the title bar, there's like an extra space once I've opened one of them up. Mm-hmm. I was going just going through random ones here. And some of them, it's extremely clear what they're talking about, but not extremely clear in what context you would ever see them. So this one says, this is ID... Negative 16583 from System. Apple sound chip hardware specific support. Controls the hardware interrupt and calls the sound component chain to get audio data for the ASC. Jim Reeks calls this the spatula. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Our good friend Jim Reeks from episode one, creator of the uh, startup chime. Um, He called whatever this thing is, that this is the question. What is it? Where would I find this string? I have no idea. But apparently it's a spatula. Ed mentioned the bundle resource, BNDL, as an example from the ResEdit reference that had some some good in-jokes. But this was actually a, a, a resource that I came to know through the example that I think was cited in the uh, the ResEdit reference, and that was for teach text or simple text uh, in later versions of the classic macOS because uh, it was the bundled text editor with the system. And it could create some plain text documents or in simple text, uh, very basic, rich text. And a lot of software or shareware icon sets from the icon factory, whatever you name it, would come with a brief little readme document uh, <laughs> to like describe who made it, how to use it, how to get in contact with the author. And the icon for these was more often than not kind of like a folded over newspaper. And for a long time, I thought that this was a stylistic choice. I just want this uh, readme file to look like a newspaper instead of a, a document that you know, implies writing. But it turns out that these are two different document types. One's read-only and one is editable. And when I found this out, it was the same time that I figured out what creator codes and uh, file codes, file type codes were. Because it wasn't just that people were pasting this icon of a newspaper onto their readme files. It was that they were changing the file type to a read-only teach text document. And this bundle resource is where you kind of control all the associations with your app. Teach text uh, had the creator code of TTXT, all lowercase. And associated with it were all capitals TEXT for the uh, normal teach text document and lowercase ttro, teach text read only. And you associate all of those in the bundle to say like, this is, this is my creator code type. These are the different file types. And yes, they all go with my application and here are their icons. 
one thing about messing with this resource is that if you make significant changes, you need to do the much hated desktop rebuild of the classic Mac OS days so that the finder would now know the new associations of different files with their creator applications. Yeah, I remember trying to edit this resource and getting certain file types to open in a different application. And I think that I was missing that crucial last step of rebuilding the desktop. And of course, like you said, Brian, no one ever wanted to do that because it was extremely slow. And it makes sense now that a portion of that was essentially, what, just trawling the system for applications, looking inside their BNDL resources and making a note of everything that's in there. Of course, that's going to take a long time. And of course, to fit into this episode, if you go into the system suitcase and you look at its bundles, the bundle ID zero is actually like the system as an owner of different file types. And the creator code is max, M-A-C-S, and they have different types of files associated, including the finder, the system suitcase, the clipboard, and generic extensions, INITs. The last resource I'll talk about uh, that I remember changing a lot in the system were the cursors. You could literally go into the system suitcase file, and with one exception that we'll mention in a little bit, you could edit the cursors used in the system from the, the little wristwatch icon, both the static with the hands at, what, like 3 o'clock, or the animated uh, like a minute hand going all around the clock face. And the cursor resource, there are a couple kinds of cursor resources. The main one was capital C-U-R-S, and this was for black and white static cursors. They were 16 by 16, essentially little 16 by 16 black and white icons with one crucial difference, and that was they had to have a hotspot or the exact pixel that was the, the trigger of the mouse click. So we all know that, that the default cursor in macOS is the black arrow. And the very tip of the arrow is actually the point that is clicking when you click your mouse button or trackpad. It's fun to look at these default cursor resources to figure out where this hotspot is on other things. Like, for example, the iBeam, when you're selecting text, is not actually in the middle of the iBeam, but slightly above center. And on the static wristwatch, it's not in the very middle of the watch face, but uh, at the edge of the watch face closest to the crown on the right side. I think uh, I learned that one pretty quickly in the classic Mac, especially in uh, OS 8. Once you had preemptive multitasking, you were going to actually be performing a lot of actions while the watch cursor was active. And so you needed to know exactly which part of it to click with. There were a couple other resource types. Lowercase crsr was for color static cursors, uh, 256 color, 16 by 16 icons. And the acur, a lowercase acur resource, which set up animated cursors. You uh, told it how many frames the animation would be and gave it the ID numbers of each frame, which would be uh, curse or cursor resources. Right. So like a basic hack that you could do is you could modify the watch cursor and maybe you would do something silly like make the hand run backwards. 
But that wouldn't mean that you would have to go in and modify all of those individual frames of animation. You could go into the ACUR resource and just swap the frames around. And I mentioned the standard arrow cursor. And I could have sworn that this was baked into a system resource somewhere. But in going back to research for this episode, I couldn't find it. It's nowhere to be found. The four very standard system cursors of the uh, the I-beam, the wristwatch, and two different crosses, one for like graphics manipulation and one for spreadsheet manipulation, are in the system suitcase file with IDs 1, 2, 3, and 4, and a bunch of other cursors like the frames of animation for the wristwatch or the black and white pinwheel um, have various negative ID numbers, leading me to think that somewhere there's a cursor resource ID zero that must be the standard arrow. But uh, yeah, yet to be found. I think that the standard arrow might have been encoded in ROM at some point. And I guess it makes sense. You, that's one of those things that you really don't want to uh, mess around with. And it's kind of, you know, I kind of think of the classic cursor, even now in the retina era, it took me a little while to get used to the retina arrow cursor because it had been 16 by 16 pixels, black and white forever, mm -hmm. right? That was one of the few interface elements that did not change at all. Even today, if you buy a non-retina Mac, which Apple sells, the cursor that you move around the screen with a mouse or trackpad to click on things is the exact same 16 by 16 pixels that it was on the original Macintosh. The only change is if you're on Retina, and then it's a little bit of a different design um, just to make it clean in the 2x pixel resource. But it makes sense then not to change it. And I remember in the 90s, in the heyday of the Mac versus Windows era, that the cursor was one of the kind of defining pieces of interface between the two because the Mac had the black cursor with the white boundary and Windows had the white cursor with the black boundary. E even that tiny little piece of user interface, it was like they were diametrically opposed to each other. So there was no way to go in and change that. And that's probably good. Then you couldn't do things like go in and prank someone by putting the hotspot of the cursor. Like in the tail or something. Yeah, in the tail or like in the top right corner where there's actually no image at all. <laughs> I think you might be right about it being in the ROM because as I think back to the boot sequence of the really old Macs in my family house, I think... I may be totally off base here, but I think that when you cold boot your Mac and you had the the black and white dot gray pattern before you got like the, the smiling system folder or the smiling Mac, um, there might have been a flash of the arrow at its like initial position at the upper left corner. Right. In the startup sequence, you would get just like the gray dither pattern. Then you would get Somewhere in there, you'd get the Happy Mac. And then at about the same time that the March of Extensions would begin, you would get the cursor. And so it's like the system is still loading. The finder has not even thought about loading yet. And you have the cursor and you can move it around the screen. And that was you know, an indication that you weren't hard frozen on startup or something. And if you had a bad extension conflict, you could get, you know, I remember doing this 
to diagnose extension conflicts is you would start up the Mac and then you would just move the cursor in small circles <laughs> as the extensions were going. And at some point it would, it would freeze. <laughs> You'd be like, ah, it's somewhere in the queues. <laughs> right. But you know, you would think like, okay, um, it was a long time after that last one on the bottom loaded. And I know where it is. Yeah, it's Q. And so it has to be somewhere between, you know, R and T because there were no other extensions that showed images between there and there. Those of us who didn't have conflict catcher. <laughs> Let's move on to another resource type. One that is, this one is interesting because it's one of those resource types that behaves as a resource, but then also behaves in unique ways, especially in the system and it sounds. So one of the ways that you could interact with the system just in the GUI, just within the finder, is you could open up the system suitcase in System 7, and you could see its, quote, contents. But all you would see were keyboard layouts and sounds. And those sounds are the System 7 sound file type. And you could drag those anywhere that you wanted to, copy them out of the system, put new sounds into the system. And all these sounds were were basically just files with a resource fork. They typically had just one sound resource in them, SND space, I guess. And they were of type SFIL, sound file, and their creator was MOVR. And if you had one of these files, if you double-clicked it in the finder, didn't open an application, it just played the sound resource that was contained within it. And so these sound resources, some of them were baked into the system file themselves, and then some were in these other quasi-files that lived within inside of it. Uh, I, guess, I guess within the system file itself, within the system suitcase, if you opened up that up in ResEdit, all of the sound resources were copied into it because ResEdit sees it as a file, not as a suitcase. But then if you did drag and drop for, you know, take Indigo, for example, and drag it out of the system suitcase all of a sudden, that's a file now. Really kind of an odd hybrid behavior in System 7. But the sounds were there, and you could add sounds this way, or in System 7 then it was very easy to add sounds, either just through the sound control panel or by creating your own System 7 sounds. And sometimes you wanted this. Sometimes you wanted to have a System 7 sound, and you could do this with any sound resource. So... That was one of the advantages of this file format was that you could take any sound resource and just encapsulate it in something that you could play in the finder. Uh, we mentioned last episode you could put them in startup items. Uh, so you could take any sound that you want. Maybe you wanted to take a sound effect from a game and use that as either a system alert sound or have it just stored for reference on your system. And you could take one just create a new file in ResEdit, save that sound resource in there, uh, and then as long as you set the type and creator code properly, you would have it as the System 7 sound file. I wonder if this would work. If you copied the sound resource from the game and pasted it into your system suitcase, the live one, and saved, would it create the file within the suitcase in the finder? I'm not entirely sure. And again, this is in that, that realm where once you got to System 7... All of this was obviated by actual system features where if you just go into the 
into the sound control panel, you can say add a sound. Which, interestingly, this is one of those few features that is basically gone from OS X, right? Yeah. It's very difficult. I mean, I'm looking right now. I always have the sound preference pane open as we're recording, just in case, looking at levels and stuff. But if you go in there, one of the other things is the alert sounds. And it has all of the built-in ones, basso, blow, bottle, frog, etc., etc. And there, there's two columns in that view, name and type, and they say built-in, all of them. And I don't, I don't think you can just drag and drop a file into there. And if you want to go find those, they're like really buried away in slash system slash I don't know where. So it's interesting that sound resources, sound files, alert sounds were really much more portable in System 7. Some other things that were peculiar to the system file, obviously sounds were not. They were everywhere. Every time I got a new game, I would open up the application and just play all the sounds, right? Yeah, absolutely. Spoilers be damned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to hear every single laser and explosion and dialogue line that's been put into this game. But one that was really more somber and peculiar to the system file were keyboard layouts. And interestingly, again, these were the kind of things that I would expect would be really like not user editable. And you know, you would get an English keyboard layout, or maybe if you had uh if you had an internationalized version, you would install a different keyboard layout. But for the most part, I figured that this was not a user-facing feature, but there it is for the KCHR, which I presume stands for keyboard character resource. If you open those up, you get a big GUI editor, a rather confusing one, one that I never really quite understood, but you can edit the layout of the keyboard and including things like the there's a mode for the dead key editor that like when you press option and then you get uh like if you press option e this goes all the way back you know, then you're going to get characters that have an acute accent on them but only if you select the appropriate key afterwards otherwise you get a plain accent in the next character so all of this was editable within there but i never really got into it i never had a good motivation to change around the keyboard layout. That was one of those things that seemed like you would probably just cause trouble and confuse yourself unless you had a really good motivation for doing so. I saw one thing that said, oh, you can uh, you can take the shift comma and shift period and make those not be greater than and less than anymore so that when you hold down the shift key, and you want to type abbreviations with periods in them, then it's all fine. I'm like, that seems like a terrible idea because you're going to need those keys eventually. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you're not a programmer or something, like those are common characters. And to remember that like you've stashed them in some other corner of the keyboard instead of where they are literally printed on the keyboard seems like a bad idea. You know, if I wanted to do something like that today, I would use a utility like Text Expander. And I have some of these, like there are some abbreviations I use regularly at work that are a couple of characters followed by a number, like uppercase characters followed by a number. And so I have a text expander snippet that'll take those two uppercase characters and the symbol that corresponds to that number 
and automatically changes it so that I don't have to let up off the shift key or if I just miss it, it'll fix it for me. But going to the extent of actually changing your keyboard layout seems a bridge too far (laughs) for that kind of thing. There are still ways of creating custom keyboard layouts that, again, I I think are GUIs and I find still just as daunting today. I know there's an OS X utility called Ukulele, which is spelled the way you think Ukulele is spelled, not the way Ukulele is actually spelled, (laughs) with three E's. Uh, And it's a GUI for editing keyboard layouts. And I know when I was in grad school, I got out of the branch of linguistics where you have to type international phonetic alphabet characters <laughs> all the time. Uh-huh. But I, I had to occasionally, and I still find it useful for you know unambiguously saying what a pronunciation for something is. And I had a couple friends who there were a couple of IPA layouts available, but sometimes they just didn't make sense. And you were really at the mercy of what you could remember or opening up uh opening up keycaps as you typed the entire time to try to figure that out. And if something was really in a place that didn't make sense to you, okay, that's a perfect example of I'm typing in an alphabet that is not the standard Roman alphabet, and I want the keys to be in a certain place, go in there, change that around, have fun. And I think I actually used for a while a layout that one of my friends created that was completely different than the ones that were publicly available on the internet. And some of its features just made more sense to me. One last thing before we leave the system file is it's, it's always dangerous poking around in places that you shouldn't be (laughs) because all of these resources have four letter codes that a great number of them are spelled out what those codes are supposed to indicate in the ResEdit reference that we've linked up, that big PDF. But many, many of them, I would say the majority of them in the system file itself are not explained there. And some of them, you can take a guess at what they're referring to. Some of them are completely cryptic. And some of those cryptic ones are a little bit unfortunate. <laughs> so there's um, there's a resource in there. Its type is DBAG. <laughs> and there's one of them. It's ID0. Its size is 4. And it's just the hex 00000000. So it serves absolutely no purpose other than just to say DBAG as far as I can tell. Somewhere in your system. There's a D-bag. And there's the extraordinarily, unfortunately abbreviated S-L-U-T, which I I presume is, I don't know what S stands for, but I presume it's an S lookup table. But that's that was a little bit jarring to me. That one actually has some data in it, so it's probably good for something. <laughs> there's another layer to guessing what certain things are in ResEdit, because especially for the ones where ResEdit has its own custom GUI interface for editing them instead of dumping you straight into the hex. ResEdit will also usually have an icon for the resource type of this that helps you out. Uh, so like the icon for icons, I think, has a folder and a, the application icon. Or the dialog ones Ed was talking about earlier have little facsimiles of a dialog box and so on. But for these ones that you have no idea what, what they are, they are just like little little bits of hex or binary? It depends. Some of them show binary, just little ones and zeros, and some of them show assembly code. 
very, very tiny representations of fake assembly code, or perhaps real assembly code. I don't know. But yeah, many of them are kind of self-explanatory. Like the bundle resource has a little tiny application and then like flowchart arrows going out to documents. That's exactly what it does. Or CLUT, which is the color lookup table, it shows a little palette of colors. So it's obvious. Some of them are pictorial, but don't exactly tell you what they do. For example, the ROV number sign resource, which has a picture of a physical chip like would plug into a circuit board, and it says ROM, and then there's a line, like, circle and a line through it, the universal symbol for no. <laughs> I have no idea what that does. It, something about not the ROM, but that's it. Another one that we'll get to in a minute is the size resource. And this one, I don't know if there's a history behind this, but it's always cracked me up because it's the size resource. It's like the outline of the Happy Mac, but if it got really fat and round. Yeah, it's like bulging. <laughs> so I wonder if that's just a pun on its name. We're going to keep talking about some of these resources, but uh, we're going to move out of the system suitcase and into the other big file in the system folder, the finder. And I will start off again by talking about icons. There are some finder-specific icons, uh, not like replacing system-level stuff like we were talking earlier, but uh, especially in the version that I was looking at, again, uh, in OS 9 territory, there are a lot of icons for printers because I think, what is it, like 7.5 or so was the arrival of desktop printing where you could have like your printer queue as a as a volume essentially on your desktop and so those were controlled through the finder and i've got almost nothing in mind by comparison i've got the system 7 sound icon the two font icons uh what are they the the screen font and the true type fonts one has a single a one has three a's the keyboard layout the font suitcase a some kind of other generic suitcase that has a grid on it. I'm not sure what that's for. A little document with a world, which I think was for like TCP connection and something else that I think also goes with that, which is one of those mysterious extension icons with a picture of one hand handing a book to another hand. I think the suitcase with a grid on it might be related to desk accessories from the pre-System 7 days. That could be. Um, but yeah, so there there are a couple icons specific to things you will see in your respective version of the Finder uh, in there to play around with as well. One thing that we mentioned with the system suitcase is that there were some menus in there, but only a handful of them because there aren't really that many persistent system-level menus. And you say, okay, well, I if you looked in other applications, they would also have those capital menu resources where you could get a real idea of what all the menu options were and modify them very easily. So you'd think, okay, great, I'll do the same for the Finder. It's just an app application like any other, right? No. <laughs> Starting from System 7, the Finder used a different type of menu resource. I'm not sure exactly what this was for. Uh, maybe it was faster or more efficient. Who knows what the backstory is? But they used a special type, FMNU, presumably Finder Menu. And these were all hex resources. And so there was no GUI. And this meant that 
even for accomplishing the same exact type of task that you would want to do with the menu editor, you had to go to a lot more trouble. So with the menu resource editor, you can just go in and there's a field that says, what is the command key shortcut for this? And you could just put in M, you know, and that would be it. That item would have that shortcut then. But you couldn't do this in the Finder. And of course, Finder commands were some of the things that you wanted to work with most frequently. Maybe you wanted to change a key command or add one. Not everything in the Finder had a key command. I think uh, a lot of things that I saw said that at some point, the make alias command just had no keyboard shortcut. And that's something that you might do frequently. And to edit these, you would have to go into the hex and do hex editing on them. It was fairly easy to add keyboard shortcuts, fortunately. Within the FMNU resource, you could find the names of the various menu items because they would be in the clear. So in the hex editor, it would have the main part of the editor would be the hex code, but then over on the side, there would be an ASCII representation down the side column. So you could find, for example, make alias. And then if you wanted to change the command key for that, you had to count three characters before it and replace what was a non-printing ASCII character, so just a box, with the letter that you wanted. But again, like if you got it wrong at all, you were in just huge trouble because you had corrupted the hex compiled resource. This is another one of those things that we think of as just a feature now, right? And it's it's a system-wide feature. If you go into the keyboard preferences pane in OS X, there is a section for creating and changing keyboard commands for menu items. And it's not the world's greatest interface because you have to manually type in the name of the menu item itself, and it only goes by the name of the item, not what menu it's in. So if there's some ambiguity there, it might not work properly. And But if you do that, it works just as you would expect. The new command that you have chosen appears right in the menu, natively in the app, including the finder. So this is something that you know, I, I think we think frequently, or people talk in Apple circles today like, oh, Apple's design of their software is leading them down the road of no power user features, no customizability. But no, it's right there. And in fact, this is something that to get this kind of customizability before, you'd have to go into ResEdit. You would have to really be hacking around, whereas now it's just a user-facing feature. You have to know still where to look, but there's no real trickery to it. So I don't know that I ever really changed these FMNU resources very much myself. I might have added a keyboard shortcut here or there. In the Mac Addict that I have here, they have a much more ambitious, perhaps the most ambitious uh, finder menu hack that I've seen, which is to add command Q and a quit command to the file menu in the finder. And I have absolutely no idea how this was done. <laughs> uh, and they say, you know, make a copy of the finder, make a copy, make a backup copy, and then go into this resource. And at the end of the resource, type these 48 characters of hex. Just trust us and make sure you have it exact. Triple check it. Because if you don't have it exact, it will be corrupt and the finder will not start. And you'll be very sad <laughs> because you need the finder to get back and fix it. So whatever it is, is, you know, it's into this area of just raw hex editing, which 
to me was that was the level at which I could not go past in ResEdit. I was dependent on these GUI parts of it. And it, even now, I understand that there is a representation there, that whatever that hex resource is has been deterministically created and it corresponds to some kind of assembly code. But to me, that's like saying, like, I understand assembly code is a defined language that has meaning and hex is just one way of representing that. But to me, it's like saying, okay, this thing, it's written in Welsh. Okay, I understand that. I appreciate that. Welsh is a language. It works like other languages, but I don't know Welsh. And you say, okay, yeah, well, it's in Welsh and we've written it in Morse code. <laughs> and you know, that's the level to which I can approach these kind of hex resources. It's like, I know, I understand why it works, but I have no understanding of how it works. So if you're going to go in and hack these kind of things, another one that's in here is the code resources. To call it hex code is probably wrong. It's hexadecimal encoded assembly or machine language. And to go in there and edit that, you have to just be going in on blind faith of someone who knows both of those things. And it's even more so than like doing a defaults right command in OS X. Because there, you know, oh, like I'm, I'm going in and I'm changing some secret feature of the operating system. But a default write command is largely English. Like it's interpretable because even if the, the value or the attribute that you're changing is a little bit cryptic, you have a sense. Someone tells you this default write command changes the interval at which time machine updates. And you're like, well, yes, I see that it's, it says time machine here and there's a number there, right? Like it, it goes, it goes together very easily. So within these hex resources, the only thing that you could edit in that way where, where you could see in the ASCII representation plain text. One other of these hex hacks that I don't know that I ever tried, although I'm tempted to now because it's slow as molasses in Basilisk, which is what I'm using to poke around in ResEdit, is there was a hack to remove the zooming effect, of uh, the zooming rectangles when you open a new window especially in ResEdit. It's super slow in here. Um, but they say, okay, you go into the Finder and you open up this code resource and trust us. <laughs> Again, you know, like you have to really just change this extremely long string and cross your fingers. So that's interesting that there was this level of access to some of those deep features. I mean, I know that in OS 10 today, since Lion, there is a completely unremovable, there is no defaults right command, zooming animation when you open and close windows. There was a very upset part of John Syracuse's Lion review <laughs> about this that we'll link to. And that's still there. We've just had to get used to it. Like there's no, there's no equivalent of going in and even doing this kind of hex code hacking. And one thing about both of these these uh, suggested specific hacks that jumps out at me is that uh, they were distributed in printed media. And like you said, it was like, it was very important that you got it right uh, at a character basis. And, you know, like capitalization even mattered. Um, when we think about things like these, like passing around these uh, like defaults terminal commands, 
you just copy and paste them off a website. You don't have to worry about getting it right if you trust the publication it's coming from. And, uh, and like I've heard stories of, that I think were just a little before our time of magazines that would include little basic programs at the, at the back. Or entire games. Like, here's an article in our magazine. It's eight pages of basic code. Get typing. Yeah, type this yourself. Like, that was a way of distributing software. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's just, it, it's a whole another era. Right, because I look at these you know, 48-character hex string, and when I'm confronted with something like this, uh, like, maybe I have a password or something that I need to get from one place to another. And, you know, usually I have one password on all my devices and that's very easy, but sometimes there's just like, there's an air gap for whatever reason. And I always look for the way of getting it from the one place to the other, even if that's like, okay, I need to copy this and I need to open this third party utility that let me share my clipboard to the other device. Like, I would not even think of starting to type in 48 hex digits. But that was that was the way that you could do it. One other resource that we mentioned uh, was the pudgy little size resource. <laughs> uh, and this one is interesting because this is another one of those resources that you didn't really have to deal with directly unless you were working with the finder. Because the size resource was what would change the memory allocation of a given application. And for most applications, you would just go into the get info window. It would give you the minimum and suggested amounts, and you could put in a value. One reason that you would go to the size resource would be, I guess, I think you could use the size resource to either change the minimum or put in a value less than the minimum if you were feeling particularly adventurous, but that would probably lead to crashes. But one of the things that could happen is that the finder itself could run out of memory, even though your system wasn't completely out of memory. But you could change the amount of memory allocated to the finder with its own size resource. So if you went to the finder in the finder <laughs> and got info on it, you wouldn't have the ability to change its memory allocation right there. I don't even know that it would necessarily appear as an application uh, not just that it was grayed out, but just not even an option. So if you wanted to do this, it meant a trip to ResEdit. It meant making a copy of the Finder. Although, to be honest, this is this is one of those where if you're going to define the line, like, what am I willing to edit in place? This is probably fine, right? Yeah. I'm going in, I'm changing a parameter for the Finder. I guess if you put it too low and your Finder wouldn't ever launch, you might be in big trouble. But if you were increasing the amount of RAM given to the finder, pretty much nothing could go wrong in that direction. Because again, you would do this for other applications. And with those applications, you wouldn't make an entire copy of the application. Of like escape velocity or something. Right. Just to go in and change its size resource. You're Why would I need to make a copy of this? This is exactly the same as going to get info. It's like, why would I make a copy of the file to change its name in ResEdit, which you could do? Like, there's no reason for that because it's basically non-destructive. There's almost nothing that could go wrong, except there was always something that could go wrong. <laughs> Famous last words. Well, and this was the reason that we had size resources, right? It was because every application said, I need to allocate this much memory and it needs to be a contiguous block. That was the whole reason that we had all of the third-party hacks in the first place is that Every application, including the system, including the finder, said, this is my RAM from this byte to this byte 
everything in between is mine. So you could go in and directly manipulate someone else's RAM to perform some hack. But that also meant that when you were using the system, you needed the dreaded largest unused block to get a new application to launch. Because if you had nine megs of RAM free, but they were in four and five, and you needed eight, too bad. You needed eight contiguous megabytes of RAM. And so this could lead to trouble with opening up multiple applications and making sure that the finder had blocked out its appropriate portion was just another piece of that. Moving a little bit down the alphabet to the string resource blocks again, uh, there were there are a lot of strings in the finder file, and a lot of them are balloon help content. Uh, we all know and love balloon help. You turn it on from the help menu, and then when you mouse over an interface element or an icon, a little speech bubble will pop up with some descriptive text telling you what that thing is or does. Or a picture. Entertainingly, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Our, our escape velocity Easter egg. Um, and similar to the dialog boxes, there are some helper resources, resource types in ResEdit that corresponded to balloon help. There's all lowercase HDLG, HFDR, and HMNU. And they were basically uh, hex resources that associated strings for balloon help text with what like the HDLG was for dialog box options, those kinds of interface elements. HFDR, I assume, was either finder windows or specific icons and files browsed within the finder. And HMNU were menu items. And again, presumably those linked up by resource ID. So whatever the HDLG is trying to explain, it's going to be linked by the same ID to that actual dialog box, wherever that is encoded, whether it's probably in the finder, maybe in the system file. And so this would be a very labor-intensive way to uh, figure out which string corresponded to which thing and just kind of surreptitiously go in and change balloon help text, which I think I did for the hard disk. I did it for like one or two things on my family computer. See if they notice. Yeah, this is going to be so funny when they notice, but no one no one turned on balloon help. They would ask me or my brother if they needed to know what something was. One last thing here in the Finder, and this is a useful one, an interesting one, was the FMAP resource, F-M-A-P. We talked with the system file having the default or generic icons that would apply to the system. The FMAP resource is for mapping different file types to applications by default. So if you had an application installed on your system, it's bundle resource and the desktop file would help the system figure out, oh, okay, I've installed Photoshop and now I know to open Photoshop files in Photoshop. But maybe, you know, the classic example, you have several different graphics editors on the Mac and you say, I want to always edit JPEGs in Photoshop. How would you do that? And so the FMAP resources were for that. It would determine the default application for files of a certain type if they weren't mapped to uh, an application by their creator code, or if they were mapped to an application that you didn't have. So you could go in there and 
These were also hex resources, but again, the text was rather simple to understand because it was just the two pieces of information, the type code of the file, the generic file, and the creator code of the application that you wanted to open it were just right next to each other. And so you would just type those eight characters in a row. Uh, you know, you would look up those or maybe know them off the top of your head. And you would be able to do that. So an example that's in there by default in the system is uh, for picked files, so capital P-I-C-T, and those by default open in teach text or simple text, T-T-X-T. And you could go in there and change that. And then, for example, every time you took a screenshot and it was saved as a picked, you could open it in graphic converter or something like that. Um, again, this is one of those features that this is you know, really deep inside the finder actually going into edit a hex resource in the classic Mac in OS 10, which famously did away with type and creator codes, which, you know, some people still find a little bit troublesome to this day, <laughs> but in OS 10, this exact thing making the default is done with a user facing feature right in get info. So you can go in there and there's the option for what application do I want to open this with? And then there's another option in that menu that says, use this application for all files of this type, and it confirms it with you. And then from that going forward, it's a little bit different because it's not just the generic, it's all files of that type. So you can't say, oh, just the ones that I don't know where they're from, or just the ones that are created with apps I don't have, because the creator code is not there for you. But it's interesting that, again, one of these, what we would consider a hack in the classic Mac was turned into eventually not just a feature, but a feature that a fairly average user might come across in OS X. And maybe that's one of the reasons that we still love the Mac today, is that for all the talk of it getting dumbed down and simplified, there is, in fact, a lot of power, power that we came to know through these sort of back doors in the classic Mac era, but is there in OS X in various places, as long as you know where to look. And we've just covered the system suitcase and the finder, but uh, with ResEdit, you could really apply this sense of, of changing and, and going in through the back door and hacking uh, to really anything on the system. And they would be organized in these same resource types that we've been discussing here. Uh, I think in the previous one, when we talked about the map control panel, you could edit it to have a, a color map projection instead of just the, the standard black and white. And we mentioned escape velocity often on this very episode. And in previous, we had a whole episode dedicated to it. The entire plugin and world expansion uh, architecture for escape velocity was basically modifying the resources for ships and systems and stuff with ResEdit. And so uh, we've, again, we've only mentioned two files here, but you could uh, hack your way through the entire system and the third-party software that you installed. Yeah, those other third-party applications, a lot of them relied on one thing that we didn't talk about here, which is template resources in Reza. And that, that's an entire other topic, but what one thing that was an extensible feature of ResEdit was that instead of forcing everyone to do that hex editing, you could create template resources. Again, I have no idea how, but this was how, like you said, Brian, in Escape Velocity, the plugin architecture, 
it was kind of paint by numbers. You could go in and you, as long as you had the right types of resources, resource was a flexible construct. You could put any kind of data in there and structure it any way that you wanted. And so you could have a resource type that was for ships, spaceships. And all of the fields in that resource type are information about spaceships instead of being information about menu items, for example. <laughs> like two completely different applications. Another thing that we mentioned and also had an episode on was Kaleidoscope. And we did get into some of the resource types for Kaleidoscope. Some of those resource types are also present in the system files. And you could go in there and to a limited extent, like you could just change colors. Like you wouldn't be able to change the appearance of window widgets or the outline of the window, certainly. But you could go in and maybe you just wanted to make everything blue, but you didn't care that the design was no different. You could go in and maybe edit just a palette or just a color lookup table and make all of your dialog boxes blue or all of the alerts red. And you know that seems like something that's kind of remarkable that it's just, you know, it's like CSS now where you just make one change and it affects so many things. Uh, and, you know, like you could open up a web inspector today and, and change things on the fly. It's like, oh, I want that to be blue. And, but you're reading the New York Times. <laughs> and, you know, you can do that kind of on the fly with uh, more modern technologies. It was definitely not on the fly in the classic Mac. That was one of the reasons that uh, there was that hack to put in command Q in the finder was because every time that you made a change to see it, you needed to relaunch the finder. Again, another feature that's kind of just right there in OS X. Uh, all I need is just a couple modifier keys and a right click, and there it says relaunch. Yeah. So I think that will be the end of our journey into the system folder, at least for now. So we got the high-level view and now hopefully not too far off into the weeds in the low-level view. But, of course, if anyone can really explain to us what those hex resources mean, <laughs> even just what their little abbreviations mean, we would be happy to know. Of course, you can contact us by going on our website or by finding us on Twitter. Show Twitter is at simple underscore beep. You can find all the things that we referenced in this show in your podcast app of choice or on our website, go to simplebeep.com slash episodes for a full listing. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time.